in the same way that an athlete has to train, has to learn and fully understand the game, know the loopholes, the, 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 you know what I mean? Like know the rule books, the game books through and through, know how it's growing, how it's advancing. What's really happening in their sport is the same thing you have to do as a creator, is the same thing you have to do as an artist in particular and consume and understand and research so that you can continually be refining your voice. Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 20 of the Power of Why podcast. My name is Naomi, and today I am joined by, you know, a new friend, um, and she's so dear. She is a poet. Her name is Ali Stahl. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So I'd like to start with introducing you, and then I'd love for you to give us a little bit more detail on your origin story, right? From the pages of North American literary journals to the stages of London, England, and the walls of Uganda, Ali Stahl is a spoken word poetess who also serves her audience in awe-inspiring performance. Ali Stahl is, a, is one of the 100 Black women to watch in Canada, has opened for author Lawrence Hill, wow, and uses her voice to encourage her audience to believe you are power. And I think you are power is such a beautiful way and use of language, right? As opposed mm-hmm. to saying you have power, um, you are power, I think, takes a, a deeper look and it has a deeper meaning that I know for sure you're going to delve into today. Thank you again for, for joining me, for sharing your story. And um, I know leaving the audience with something that they can take away and apply in their own life. Absolutely. Um, I think there is such an importance in understanding the power that we have by simply existing. Um, Mm -hmm. For me growing up, so I'm born of immigrant parents. I was raised in the burbs in the early 90s in a Catholic school as the only black girl in my Mm -hmm. grade for a very long time. So my personal experience was not seeing myself represented mm-hmm. um, in the faces of my peers, in the people around me, in my neighborhoods. So for me, I had to understand very early, from a very early age, that who you are as you were created, as you exist, is a powerful, powerful thing. And that makes you power. Not you possessing power, not you controlling mm-hmm. power, but you as an individual exist as being power and in your power you are a walking revolution I realized that um, as individuals we are all very powerful because I would walk into a room and the room would change and at a young age I didn't realize why the room was changing and sometimes it was changing just because the conversations had to change because the black girl was there sometimes Mm -hmm. the conversations had to change because the girl (laughs) Mm -hmm. was there Sometimes the conversation has to change because the young girl was in the room. Um, So there's different um, aspects of my intersectional identity that changed how the room was operating before I entered. And that makes me powerful. And that's true for every individual. As you walk into a space, you have the capacity to change what is happening in there for good or for bad. Really, it's for good or for bad. So a little bit more about myself um, is understanding that there was a lot of things that were said to me as a child, um, as a young adult, that I carried with me as creating my own personal narrative of you're too much, 
you're too loud, you speak too much, you talk too much, you mm. <laughs> like, and on and on and on. And I was often told that I was just too much. And it wasn't until I really took the opportunity to sit down and understand what was being told to me with the active and conscious decision to change that narrative into something that was more positive, that I realized all those things that were being said to me may have been perceived as negative, but because I am power, I have the power to change that mm -hmm. narrative into something positive. Mm -hmm. So when I got married in 2017, we got pregnant shortly after, two months in, literally to the day I took a pregnancy test that turned positive before I could wash my hands. I was <laughs> Lord, <laughs> when it happened. Yeah. And I had a really hard time adjusting because in the first 12 weeks of our marriage, it went from being like in the same home for 20 years to moving to a new city with my new husband that we've never lived together before. Um, we didn't have um, babies in our family. Our family, the youngest child was 12 years old, even in my extended family. So all of a sudden, it was my brother and his girlfriend were expecting, and then we were expecting, and then my other cousins were expecting, and so on and so on. In that 12-week span, I lost my grandmother almost a month, a, exactly to the day, a month after we got married. Um, so there's just a lot of changes that happened in 12 weeks. Um, I lost my job and all different kinds of challenges. And when all of those changes are happening at the same time, you can really lose sight of the light that you possess and the light that exists around you. So I, I essentially lost myself um, in the midst of transition. And my husband said to me, you know what, like you really need to just get back to who you are. And one of the ways to get back to me was um, through language, through words. Mm -hmm. I, I'm a very verbose person. <laughs> yeah. And so it wasn't until I started to take the narrative that was fed to me um, and deconstructing it and finding the, po the positive in those narratives and having the power to turn it into something positive for myself through particularly affirmations was I then able to A, reclaim my power and B, ignite my power through the power of words and language. Mm -hmm. And so there's so much to unpack here. And <laughs> I, I love the way in which you kind of tell your story and lay that out. It's an interesting time now to talk about it. Um, mm -hmm. When did you... So when were you hearing these, you're too much, or you're this and you're that, and when you would walk into rooms, you would notice them shifting? Like, at what age were you aware of these things happening? It was very early on, like preschool age, um, doing, like, extracurricular activities with, with kids and just them treating me differently than they would In other preschool. people. But yeah, but the thing with it is, to be honest, you don't pick up on that or realize that that's what's happening because you have such a limited perspective of, course. of the world, yeah. right? So you just think, maybe she just doesn't like me. You know what I mean? You kind of don't take I, it personally. You're like, let me go find someone I do like. Yeah. Um, but it wasn't until I was in kindergarten, my teacher actually treated me very differently. And I could notice that my teacher treated me differently. Mm -hmm. And the students treated me differently as well. Just the way that she would speak to me, the tone of her voice, those little microaggressions that she right. would take out towards me. And I couldn't have been more than four years old, five mm -hmm. years old, however you are, in junior kindergarten. And I noticed that I was being treated different. And I noticed how the energy would shift and change. The conversations would change. Um, just how her approach would change. I'd be in a group with other kids and 
for whatever reason, when she spoke to me, it was just a little bit different. And I remember going home and telling my parents, like, she, she mm-hmm. treats me differently. Yeah. And they were like, well, maybe it's because, you know, like, you like to talk a lot. So maybe you're just being super talkative <laughs> and so on and so on. And I was like, no, it's not that. But again, limited perception because right. of my age. And so it wasn't until I actually ended up moving and changing schools and I was able to put my finger on it and we were playing house we were playing with free playtime and we were playing house and I'm a 90s kid in the sense of I grew up in the early 90s um and if full house was in full throttle at that point Uh we were playing house and the little girl said let's play full house and I love full house I was like yes (laughs) I get to be Michelle and they're like you can't be Michelle. And I was like, okay, I'll be DJ. And they're like, you can't play with us because no one on the show looks like you. Oh, wow. Oh, wow. And I remember having to walk away and just feeling the weight of heaviness Mm -hmm. of acknowledging that I was different because I I have a poem, for instance, and one of the opening lines is something to the liking of um, sitting Indian style on the carpet in the first grade. A little girl took my hand into hers and examined it. She asked, why does one side of your hand look like me and the other side look like you? I told this because I'm black, but she looked confused and she didn't understand. Hmm. And that's based off of a true story. <laughs> right. It's based off of a true story of someone Art else is calling based, out my blackness. Art is based on life. Like, is, mm-hmm. that, the, is that the Tellum poem? Is it it is. Tellum? It is Tellum. Yeah. That's yeah, the opening line beautiful. for Tellum. Correct. Yeah. yeah. I felt different, but it wasn't out of malice why these children were asking me these questions. It was literally just needing to know, you're different. Why are you different? Why did Mm -hmm. this happen? And of course, who else am I going to ask for the person that is showing me (laughs) that they're not the same as me? So I, I don't think even as a child, I don't think that I felt um angered in the sense of like you're being mean to me except for the full house example um it wasn't you're being mean to me it was just it highlighted that I was different if ever I thought for a moment that I wasn't a question like that would come my way um and that automatically reminds you hey you're different from us why um and I remember I remember very distinctly actually I could tell you exactly where it was I was in the backseat of my parents car my dad's driving north um bound on here ontario through downtown brampton (laughs) yeah i tell you exactly where it was and i remember just hearing again i'm i'm christian and i remember holy spirit just whispering to me saying i made you the way i made you for a reason because Mm -hmm. a couple days earlier i remember during playtime and it was shortly after the full housing and just being very sad and i remember crying I was praying as I, as, a, as much as a child can pray. And I was praying and I was like, God, if you love me as much as my parents tell me that you love me as much as I believe you to love me, why would you make me at the bottom? <laughs> why would you make me so different? Wow. Why would you make it so hard <laughs> for me to be accepted? If, if you love me so much, why would you make me black? Mm. And I remember distinctly a couple days later, Holy Spirit saying to me, I made you the way I made you for a reason so that you could reach a certain group of people. Right. You could talk to a certain group of people because you mean something to somebody because only you can get to those people looking the way you do. 
Right. And I'm saying it in adult words, <laughs> of course, but that's resonated with me and that's actually propelled me forward in a lot of the career choices and just um, points of activation and activism and community work and community involvement that I've made throughout my entire life has really been propelled by if I don't do it, then who needs to see it being done won't see it being done and can't do what they're supposed to do. Right. Right. And so when did you start to go to art, go to writing to kind of express your experiences, express your story? Uh, what age was this? Um, and I'm really curious about your parents, too, and how they raised you. Even <laughs> the way you're, it's interesting, in previous conversations, the way that you're describing kind of your inquisitiveness and, like, you were very perceptive at a young age. Um, Mm-hmm. And I think it's because it, it is it was cultivated in you, right? Like kids by nature will ask a lot of questions, but if you kind of swat them off and really stomp on that, you know, curiosity, then they'll stop asking the questions. But um, mm-hmm. it had to have been cultivated because the way you talk about yourself at a young age is kind of like the way I understand your daughter to be as well. The way you're describing your daughter in previous. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. that's really really interesting yeah so um to address the cultivation in the environment that I grew up in my parents were I was their first child so maybe they were a little more patient with me <laughs> <laughs> yeah. but I was definitely the child that asked why I'm still the adult that asks why um I'm fine with a no you just got to tell me why <laughs> it can't just be no stop it has to be no because um so my parents were very patient in in um letting me ask the questions why and answering it as much as they could and then equipping me the best that they knew how to to find the answer whether it was encyclopedias whether it was asking someone else whether it was looking it up in the dictionary or whatever it was they were very much like if you want to know why it exists even if I don't know how to get you that. <laughs> right. All right. Um, and from there, it just becomes, it, it really knowledge is, an, is like a rabbit hole. Like you can just keep going and going and going. And one of the biggest takeaways from my childhood in terms of lessons that my parents taught me was learn everything. I remember my dad used to say, even if someone is teaching you how to kill, you should learn how to kill. Not so that you can, but so that you know how to protect yourself. Right. Because if you know what's going to happen, <laughs> you just do the opposite. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it was just, that was a big takeaway for me because it was just a perception of it is good and okay to learn, but more than just learning and learning everything, applying it as well. And it doesn't have to be applied in the way that it was taught to you. Mm, so even if the intention was for, for bad, I, the example of if you're learning, if being taught how to kill, <laughs> yeah. um, you can turn that into a positive. You can turn that into a good. So yeah. that's definitely um, the type of environment that I, I grew up in as a child. And that's something that I'm trying my best and I'm doing my best to create for my daughter. She is definitely a me. And um, <laughs> uh, it, it's, it's, to be honest, when we were pregnant, I didn't want a girl. And I was very adamant about wanting a boy. And it wasn't until I had a realization as to why I didn't want a girl that I was open to either gender. So we didn't find out the gender while we were pregnant. And um, I was like, yep, yeah, we're having a boy. We're having a boy. And it wasn't until like I think I was about five and a half, six months pregnant. 
and it just like I, I couldn't sleep and I woke up and I'm like why can't I sleep and it was just this heaviness of like almost guilt that I didn't want to grow mm-hmm. and within 10 minutes I just had an epiphany moment and unpacked it and I realized I didn't want a girl because I didn't want a girl like me and I didn't want a girl like me because I didn't want her to have to endure mm-hmm. the challenges um, the negative negativities that I had experienced because of how I naturally exist <laughs> and mm. so I was very fearful of having a girl like me and it wasn't until that epiphany moment where I realized wait what makes it different for her than it was for me is that she has me as her mom my mom mm. and I we she's a great mother we have a, a, a working relationship that works best for us but she didn't fully understand all of <laughs> all of my eccentricities so she did her best but she didn't understand what it was to experience some of the things the way I perceived it. Right. And what makes it different for my daughter is that she has me and I'm able to say, Hey, I totally get it. <laughs> I totally I've been there. Get it. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Exactly. I've been there. Interesting. And, um, it's in your profile, you wrote, um, empowering you to live in your power. I'm curious what this mm-hmm. means to you. Well, just to go back to the question you asked before. Um, in oh, yeah, when you started writing. Into writing. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I've been writing and it sounds so cliche. And I used to make fun of people for saying it when they're like, I've been writing for as long as I've been writing. And it's like, <laughs> it sounds so terribly cliche. Because I'm like, you were like three and you learned how to hold a pencil. Like, what are you talking right. about? But I was writing for as long as I've been writing. I've been writing poetry for as long as I've been writing, but I didn't know that that's what I was doing. I didn't know that I was being a storyteller. I didn't know that stories were so important to me that I needed to convey them to people. I didn't realize this until I went through some old notebooks from like grade one journals and stuff like that that my mom had kept. And when I went back and I read them, it was it was mini scripts, like mm-hmm. mini commercial scripts of <laughs> figure skating commentary <laughs> and yeah. commercial scripts to buy cereal. And this is coming from your nightly wow. reporter, Elise Hamilton. And it was like, it's crazy as you see how my writing has evolved. And one of the earliest pieces of writing that I have, funny enough, my mom still has it on the fridge. <laughs> wow. And um, it's a poem, but it wasn't meant to be a poem. The assignment wasn't meant to be a poem and I couldn't have been more than in the first grade and it wasn't meant to be a poem. And when you read it back now, I was, like, was this a poem? And my mom's like, no, you just, that's just how you wrote. So um, writing is definitely a natural part of my gifting. Storytelling is a part of how, um, a vehicle and a method of how I fulfill my purpose. Um, and poetry is just a tool of that. I never really was intentional about um, cultivating my giftings until I was in high school. I mean, I wrote like poetry and essay contests like all kids do in elementary school, but it wasn't until I was in high school and I was about 15 or 16 years old and I encountered spoken word poetry for the very first time. Um, So, I mean, you catch glimpses of it, but in the early 2000s, um, it was still such an underground art right, that yeah. was just coming above ground that um, it was very hard to be able to really encounter it, wrestle with it, like consume it. Mm-hmm. And so it wasn't until I was about 15 or 16 years old and I went to a Black History Month event held at U of T. And um, 
Dwayne Morgan was opening up the event with spoken word poetry. Yeah. And a friend of mine, my best friend at the time, looked at me and she's like, girl, you could do this. Yeah. And I said to her, I know I can. Like, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Because, of course, when you're 15 and 16, you have so much bravado about you. You really think you can give me. (laughs) So I was like, duh. And she's like, no, I'm being serious. Like, you really could do this. And I said, but I'm being serious too. Yeah, I know. I know I can do this. <laughs> yeah. I know this is something that I can do. And I could probably do it better. Again, 15 or 16 years old. <laughs> what do I know? Clearly, I was obnoxious. Um, but that that was really when I was intentional about cultivating my my craft and my gift. What I didn't realize is that I was actually doing that from like the first grade. Um, the first grade, I, le- I was an early reader. I wanted to learn how to play the piano and um, I went for lessons when I was like three and they said to my parents, well, you know, she's really struggling with it because she can't read. She has no concept of the alphabet. And I said, okay, well, no worries. We'll just bring her back in like a year. And I spent the entire summer learning to read. I read everything down to the penny saver I read to my dad. Everything. I was just reading it so I could learn to read because I wanted to learn to play the piano so badly. So I ended up learning to read very early. I'm so stunned. Wow. (laughs) and, And of course, I mean, it's developing and it's growing and you're getting better at it. But yeah, I was just very adamant about doing certain things. Um, And so when I was in first grade and we had the opportunity to do the play, The Three Little Pigs as a class, um, I didn't want to be any of the actors. I wanted to be the narrator. I wanted to be the storyteller. I wanted to have the power of telling the story to the audience in a way that I felt was going to be the best way (laughs) Mm -hmm. for the audience to consume the story. I didn't want to be an actor. I wanted to be the storyteller narrator and so that's something that's just been um little instances that would show itself strong but it wasn't until I like I said I was 15 16 years old had that encounter um and then and then that was also the time the era of YouTube just coming out right and in the early years of YouTube all you really could get was some really grainy crappy tutorials and deaf jam um deaf poetry jam yeah (laughs) it was very limited selections and that's where I started to consume a lot of spoken word. Um, it wasn't like now where you could just like Google it or Eventbrite and find out where the, lo- you would like find the out, local yeah. space. Eventsome. Yeah, it was like you really had to just Church. kind of consume what you could get. Okay. Um, and I spent a lot of late nights watching a lot of YouTube videos of a lot of the poetry jam <laughs> mm-hmm. when I was like 15, 16 years old just to get a taste of it, um, listening to certain artists, uh, uh, being a hip-hop head, listening to a lot of that. I remember listening to hip-hop just to count out the meter within the rhymes of like mm-hmm. the Fugees in particular, um, listening to Lauren Hill's Miseducation. I was introduced to it at nine years old and just consuming wow. that like on repeat and just studying it because that for me was a real way of um, understanding the craft better, a craft that I wasn't truly understanding um, what it looked like in its true form of existence. Um, and of course, to, reading, you have to be a reader, but yeah. yeah. I would love to draw that out a, a bit more because I was um, recently, so there's this author, his name is Alan Gannett, and he wrote this book called The Creative Curve. And um, I think what's really interesting is that he talked about, you know, these creators you know one reason like some people think that you just got to create 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 but a lot of 
you know, in all all these cases um, that he interviewed these people who are in creative fields, they're all creatives, um, they spent an inordinate, inordinate amount of time consuming content mm-hmm. in that specific area. Like if you, mm-hmm. like as you were doing, right, slam poetry, hip hop music, that sort of thing that really got you to be kind of immersed in it fully and mm-hmm. be, to then go on and like, hone in on your own voice and your own craft um but i think it, it does mm-hmm. take a certain level of understanding the game in order to go mm-hmm. and kind of make it your own go flip exactly it your own and put your own take on it exactly and it's it's uh, so i used to play soccer when i was um a lot younger <laughs> and um and throughout my my high school experience i really would compare um art to sports a lot because it's a game you it's, it's your craft you're creative you're strategic but truly and this is my personal philosophy everyone's creative just in different ways and in different right. capacities mm-hmm. everyone thinks differently um and and that's what makes it so beautiful because the way that you think is such a creative experience um because that's not the way that i think right. and so in the same way that an athlete has to train has to learn and fully understand the game, know the loopholes, the, 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 you know what I mean? Like know the rule book, the game book through and through, know how it's growing, how it's advancing. What's really happening in their sport is the same thing you have to do as a creator, is the same thing you have to do as an artist in particular and consume and understand and research so that you can continually be refining your voice. So has your creative process evolved over the years or like, you know, what was it like when you were first at 15 versus now? To be honest, my creative process is pretty much the same. Yeah. It's a lot of consumption and then a production of the work. Um, And to be honest, from a spiritual level, listen, sometimes I just feel like the vessel. Mm. sometimes I feel like the vessel there's pieces that I've written in like 15 minutes yeah and it's literally I'm just a vessel and the words are pouring out of me yeah. other instances is something that I am walking around with and now having been a mother and having been pregnant it's the best likening is to being pregnant and you're pregnant with this creative concept from something that you've consumed and you're mulling over it and you're growing it and you're chewing on it and you're working with it and you're wrestling with it until you're ready to birth it and put it out on paper or whatever process it is for you to get that piece of art out. Um, but my creative process has been pretty much the same. Either it's I'm a vessel and I literally have nothing to do with it mm-hmm. <laughs> except to write. Yeah. Um, or the flip side of I've consumed a really great triggering piece of content. Um, and it doesn't mean that to be content in a traditional sense of someone else's art but it can be a conversation. It can be um, just being attuned and aware of my surroundings, something in nature, something in how our society, our structure of our work world exists. Um, and just wrestling with it until I've birthed something that I know I was supposed to get from it and, right. and bringing it out. It's really like, um, I'm not very good at math. <laughs> math isn't my strong suit. But from what I understand of math, it's like when you're solving for say, when you're solving for X, you really have to figure out all these different parts and pieces. And you have to be pulling from here and pulling from there and making this work and making that work before you can solve for X. Um, it's like a puzzle. 
And so for me, putting words together is really like a puzzle. It's really mm-hmm. like solving for X. And once I find X, then it's a matter of figuring out how do I put this into another equation to make it work. Um, so sometimes the wrestling is wrestling for X. And then the production of it is like, okay, I got X. And then that's a trigger to be the vessel to just let mm-hmm. it all pour out. Or it's a puzzle piece. And I look at, sometimes I look at sentences and I'm like, this isn't right. What is wrong with this sentence? And I will literally write down each word on a different scratch of paper and rearrange the sentence. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. The way you're able to lay everything out, I can see it so clearly. And I think that's really the strong Mm -hmm. side of spoken word, just poetry in general, right? Like it's the ability of of the creator to make you feel like you're kind of in their mind and you can see what they see. Um, and obviously mm-hmm. it's going to be different for, for different people, but that's a true power. That is right. like, that's you owning your yeah. power. Right? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And what's interesting is for a long time, I didn't believe that I was a visual learner. In, in, and that comes back to being part of the narrative. So often when people know that you are a communicator, when words are your strong suit, they think that you are an audio learner. And so for a long time, I thought I was an audio learner. And it wasn't until a friend of mine was like, no, you're a visual learner. Every time I see you, you're taking notes. Your hands move so fast. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Whether you're typing or you're writing, you need to write it down so that you can see it to fully understand and take in everything that's happening. Um, So like, I don't freestyle in my art. I'm not a freestyler. I will never tell someone that I can freestyle because (laughs) a part of the reason is I can't see what I'm doing. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, yeah, I, can't, I can write down something maybe in five to ten minutes and it'll be like a really bomb piece but it's not going to be a freestyle because I, I need to have it in front it. of me right yeah yeah yeah, yeah I'd, I'd really love for you to because I think especially nowadays especially today the everyone's calling themselves a creative and mm-hmm. what you said earlier about you know, we all are created just in different capacities and through different ways. Um, I think, I think it's definitely an interesting time. People are are owning that word. Um, Mm -hmm. How has the landscape changed from, from when you were, you know, creating art in the, in the nineties to now, how has it evolved? Um, Has it evolved at all? What are you thinking? Um, it definitely has evolved. The landscape has definitely changed. My sister graduated from university um, a couple of weeks ago, last week, I think it was actually. And um, there was a celebration at her church two weeks prior to that. And it was just a group of kids coming up across the stage and they're saying they graduated from so-and-so and they're going to such and such and they have a desire to be whatever they want to be. And most of the outside of my sister wanting to be an educator (laughs) Mm -hmm. most of the people who went across that stage wanted to be something that was never even a conceivable option right when I had graduated from high school yeah Uh uh-huh it wasn't even a thought like a young boy had graduated from high school going into university with the desire to want to be um, a sports manager. And had anyone I known in high school told their parents that that's what they wanted to be, that's yeah. what they were going to university for, it would have yeah. been like, 
are you are, are you ridiculous yeah, <laughs> yeah like, for sure are, when are you going to get a real job like you know what I mean there's a certain perception mm. that we're tied to a lot of roles and some of the roles that they want to do are jobs that I've heard of now but never even existed 10 12 15 years ago to right. be an option um so the landscape in general has definitely changed but in terms of art um the creative field and artistry in general, um, that has changed. Accessibility to um, platforms and your audience and contacts and everything in terms of the business acumen um, that an artist needs to have has definitely changed from what it used to be. Um, I remember, so I'm originally from Brampton, and I remember a friend of mine asked me, well, if Rupi Kaur could do it, then why can't you do it? Mm-hmm. And I was like, because Rupi Kaur came out in a time that was very different from when I started doing what I was doing because Tumblr wasn't a thing when I started. (laughs) You know what I mean? Um, Tumblr wasn't a thing in the early 2000s. What was Tumblr? You know what I mean? Um, But that's where she got her footing. And that's great because that's what's really awesome about the current landscape. However, when it's a free-for-all, you get a lot of junky people doing a lot of junky things that are unacceptable <laughs> right there's a lot more noise right? to the craft there's a there's lot, a more, lot noise, more noise but it's 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 like hurricane noise compared to mosquitoes <laughs> like it's, it's a big difference um i i just had this conversation with a friend of mine and she's a slam poet i don't slam that's just a personal um choice that i've made but my friend she slams and we what does that mean? About just what does that mean? Slam poetry. Like I, uh, when you say slam, does that just mean that's just synonymous? It's right? pretty much just like compete. Okay, gotcha. It's pretty much like do you compete in terms okay. of just because again, it's artistry um, is so similar to athletics, um, but yeah, it's it's essentially when you are a slam poet you compete there are rounds there are levels there are teams there are rules um there's time limits everything got it yeah there are judges right and we were talking about how some people slam and how some people are getting like nines and tens because the scores are out of ten and um per each judge and we're like, how are you getting top points, but you've read it off of your phone or a piece of paper? A part of spoken word poetry is engaging with your audience, having an artistry in your delivery. And I mean, there's a time and a place I've read off of my phone or a piece of paper before too, don't get me wrong. However, when you are performing at a particular level of your craft, you can't come in with props in the sense of like, if you're playing, soccer you're playing basketball you can't come in with that thing that helped you in practice you got to come in ready to play and the same thing has to be true it's like those rails in in bowling right when you have the side rails exactly (laughs) that's exactly what it is so it's great you could be a great bowler with the railings up but what (laughs) happens when the railings are down (laughs) and a lot of people who claim to be poets who are going up and reading off of their phone. It's an, if it's an open mic, by all means, that's practice. Have your railings up. But if you're competing, <laughs> yeah. like, I don't understand how I'm hearing the rustle of your Hillroy paper when mm. I really shouldn't be hearing that. I should be hearing, like, the whatever it is that I need to be hearing in your voice, in your breath, whatever, 
to evoke the emotion that you're trying to to engage with your audience with. So yeah, there's a lot of noise and there's a lot of debris that you have to clear through just to be seen or heard as an artist in whatever medium you choose to to express yourself in. Mm-hmm. And there's like, there's a way to flip that on its head completely. Like, what are the great things about being an artist and a creative now? Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, yeah, we all have the platforms. If you have a freaking phone, like you mm-hmm. have the ability to reach a lot of people. And, you know, maybe not in the beginning, but that all, mm-hmm. Time, mm-hmm. That all takes patience. Um, exactly. So what are the great things about having access to to the tools, like all you do is need to kind of write and it, and it can, it has that potential to be heard, right? Um, mm-hmm. And that's the thing, like I was saying earlier, where it's really great in the sense of you have access to resources, platforms, exactly. contacts, yeah. um, and spaces that you never would have had to be able to reach your audience or your ideal contact or whatever it is and have that business acumen that's necessary for success as an artist because Some of the work that I do is working with creatives to be like, I get it, you're an artist, but you have to be a business person as well. You have to be business minded if you want this to be successful in terms of being profitable. And success doesn't necessarily mean profit, which is a different conversation. Mm -hmm. However, there's a lot of people who are creatives and they say, I want to be able to do this full time, but they don't have the full time mindset to do it. Right. Because they don't have the full time skills. I'm sorry, the skills to make it full time. So, yeah, and there's, yeah, I, there are multiple ways to, to, mm-hmm. to make that happen. Because, yeah, mm-hmm. I think it's tough. You know, visually, I think we have in our head that quote-unquote starving artist and mm-hmm. because they don't have the kind of entrepreneurship skills or the business skills to find a way to take their passion and, and see a profit, to, you know. And Uh so in order to take that full time, not talking money for the sake of money, but money for the sake of sustenance and then eventually Uh you're able to thrive on it. But I mean, there are people who can do that for you. That's why we have agents, right? Um, Exactly. Exactly. And the thing with it is unless your mom's going to be your momager, (laughs) <laughs> when you are, have a hundred followers the on beginning. Instagram, yeah, you know what I mean. You there's a lot of legwork that you've got to put in to make it happen for yourself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. And I think a lot of times there's that saying of having to put in your ten thousand. Um, yeah, your ten thousand hours. That's how many hours they say it is, right? Um, and when you do that, you put that time into your craft you take the time or 10,000, 1,000, who remembers? 10,000. Point is, 10,000 hours. Yeah. When you put in those 10,000 hours, but now what I'm finding is that sometimes that 10,000 hours isn't, is less about your craft and more about your business application (laughs) and your marketing, absolutely your marketing and your entrepreneurial abilities um your networking that's capacity you know what I mean and, yeah. and and that's how it's definitely changed the artistry has definitely changed because you can have someone who is subpar in their craft but if they have the right connect the right brand the right, the right brand. resources yeah. you yeah. know what I mean then mm-hmm. it's a completely different story it's a very very interesting time very interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and it's an exciting time because it, it gives artists a lot of hope that I feel may not have existed previously because it gives you the hope that maybe 
this one post will be the post <laughs> that does it for you. Yeah. Maybe this one video will be the video that does it for you. Maybe this one DM will be the DM that, <laughs> you know what I mean? That breaks and, through, and, right? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So it's an exciting time, definitely. Earlier, you talked about um, your community building efforts, advocacy, um, <clears throat> um, and activism. What are some of the things that, that you're very much focused on right now? And how has that kind of inspired your, your art? How do the two mm -hmm. kind of work as a cycle to, and feed one another? Well, definitely understanding that intersectionality and the conversations around identity are evolving continuously and having a safe space to be able to have those conversations um, needs to exist. So points of activation that I've used my art for in terms of creating those safe spaces are hosting workshops or volunteering, helping with um, workshop development and program creation. Um, with not-for-profit organizations or community groups or high school students, whoever it is really that reaches out to me, um, religious organizations that might say, hey, we are noticing this in our community. And this is usually um, a challenge for particularly young people or for women or girls um, around understanding who they are and their identity, their confidence and their ability, their power. Um, and the different ways that their identity intersects with, with itself <laughs> right. um, and just unpacking that. And so it's been a very great experience in using art to help people find their voice, find their words, string together their story and find power in it. And what is honestly, like, what is your advice for people who are struggling to simply start? I think, mm -hmm. you know, for me, even getting started on the, the podcast and like reaching out to people that I, I wanted to share their stories on a platform, I think I thought about this idea for over a year because mm -hmm. I just wanted it to be quote unquote perfect. <laughs> and yeah, you know, I was, you knew I was going to say that, but like in conversations with other people too, it's like, it's not there yet or like whatever they're working on, it's not there yet. I'm like, you just have to you know, some, just get it out there. Like, I think th that confidence building too is a practice. I don't think people are just born confident. I think it's mm -hmm. something that is definitely a skill um, mm -hmm. that you need to constantly flex. And, and now it's definitely gotten easier to do so. But like, wh what are you finding is resonating with people at that level? Who maybe um, have like I notebooks and notebooks of, of, things that they've kind of shared to themselves um but haven't taken that step even though it's something mm -hmm. they want to do mm -hmm. i hate giving this advice because when i received it i vehemently passionately hated it <laughs> why however um because it's like the worst piece of advice but the best piece of advice and it's just do it start yeah it, just do it and it's, it's the worst piece of advice because it's like that obviously just to do it you know what I mean but in the same breath it's like it's, I don't want to do it because it's not perfect I refer to myself as a recovering perfectionist <laughs> um I believe in striving for progress not perfection and making that a habit huh. however yep. it's very hard to let go of that idea of perfect and just doing it jumping both feet in the fire no matter how scared you are 
So that's why I hate giving that piece of advice because it's so like impractical, but so practical. Um, and I hated it myself because for those exact reasons. However, some of the practical steps, because I had to break it down even for myself of like, okay, okay great, just do it. But how do I get there? And to your point, Naomi, it's, it is developing a skill and a habit of confidence and belief in self and um, ignition of your own power. And it's creating a habit out of that. So some of the things that I did, um, like I may mention earlier, was affirmation, changing the narrative about myself. Mm -hmm. And what I did was I made a table of um, all the things that I've been told about myself, good or bad. And I put too talkative, too loud, speaks too fast, too um, aggressive, to this, to that, and so on and so on and so on. And then I turned around in another column and I put down the positive spin on that. Mm-hmm. And so for talks too much, it's I have a lot to say. <laughs> I love that. Yeah. And for speaks too fast, it's I have a lot to say, but no one will listen. So I have to say it quickly. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. And for um, being too loud, it's I'm very passionate. And for being aggressive, it's I'm, I'm very passionate. Yeah. That you, you perceive it as aggression. But is it that I'm being aggressive or is it that you're scared of the passion that I have? And if it's a fear of my passion, then that's something you need to address, not something I need to address. And it's not to say that people can't refine themselves, grow in their capacities, figure out what works, rearrange, you know what I mean? Take that constructive criticism in, but never confine yourself to the boxes of small-minded people because it will limit you, will clip uh, your wings, and that is going to impede you from being able to just do it. So for me, affirmation, self-talk, the reformation of my mind and changing how I think about myself um, and understanding that people and about people understanding that people don't care about me and not in like a, Oh, I'm all a victim. I'm all alone. It's much more people aren't watching me as hard as I think they're watching me. Right. Just do it. <laughs> they're not sitting around my ki- their kitchen table at dinner saying, did you see that post? <laughs> like, no. Yeah. Unless I know. They're like my mom and dad. <laughs> like, they're really not sitting around the kitchen table saying, did you, did you see what Elisa posted today? Like, it, it, they're not watching that hard. It doesn't have to be perfect. And if it comes out where you end up with a typo or something didn't go the way you wanted to, it's a learning lesson. It's an opportunity to just say, hey, that's what happened. But we don't look at what was, we look at what is and how can we move forward. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I love how you touched on you know, taking those things that you kind of heard, what people would tell you, and flipping it on its head. You know, a lot of the times you notice, it's interesting, because initially, the first thing that came to mind is something that my friend said. She kind of talks about a fear-based life. So her name is Duha, and she Mm. said, and all I did was, I'm going to read, all I did was become a walking, talking projection of other people's fears Mm -hmm. see when you live a fear-based life you end up being susceptible to others other people's um fears and you don't realize that you internalize their bs too Mm -hmm. so taking that and and saying you know this is if people tell you for example like you cannot do that or you're dreaming too big or this and that Mm -hmm. a lot of the times it's their own fears that are that they're trying Mm -hmm. to project onto you right it's their their own 
kind of limitations that they're saying, I can't do that. Like, how does she expect that she's able to do it or something like that? Exactly. Exactly. Don't take it on. It's not yours to take on. Right. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. And even after conditioning, after hearing the same story for so long about yourself, um, you, you do end up taking it on, but you can take it off because you are power. You have the ability to take it off. Something that is really ironic because people who meet me now would never have thought that this was a narrative that was placed on me, but a lot of people never thought I would get married. Even my own family never thought I would get married. (laughs) A lot of people, I had teachers, I had friends, I had family members say to me, like, if you end up being that 40-year-old single lady, like, no one's going to be surprised if you're (laughs) the spooky aunt. Like, and I had a teacher tell me, like, you're just too aggressive. No man's going to want to marry you because you're just way too aggressive. And I I really internalized that because in my early 20s, I was like, it's it's cool. I'm going to just be single. <laughs> mm. I, if that's what it is, I, I can have a boyfriend like thing here or there. I used to call them BLTs. I'm like, I can have a BLT here or there. <laughs> oh my God. Oh right. My God. But, but I'm probably never going to be married because who's going to want to be with me because I'm too bossy. I'm too this, I'm too that. And it's like, no, when I turned it around and I realized, no, I'm not bossy. I'm a leader. Mm. and I'm not too aggressive I'm passionate and I'm not stubborn I'm firm in my morals and my ideals mm-hmm. it completely changed the narrative of how I perceived myself so I was putting out a different version of myself right and that allowed me to be open to the right people mm-hmm. so once I was open to the right people it was hilarious I was dating my husband for about four and a half years pretty much and when he proposed and I remember telling my aunt hey I'm engaged and she's like to who <laughs> and she met him <laughs> wow <laughs> she had met him but the narrative that people had in their mind about me yeah. and my relationship status they still can't believe two and a half years and a whole baby in that I am married Wow. Because that's the narrative that they have of me from the time that I don't even know how long. Like, people have always just been like, it's probably going to be like that aunt. That aunt that just like slips in and out because she's traveling all over the world because no one wants to be with her and she will be single. But clearly, that's not my story. <laughs> right. Because I have the power, as we all do, to change the story. So even if you internalize other people's stuff, you have to do the work to unpack it and turn that story around into what it is to create the life that you want for yourself. Mm -hmm. And this is a fascinating conversation because like we all have those narratives. We all have those stories. We all have those thoughts of, and you know, sometimes these are voices that we've been hearing that um, from the outside, but we can take it. We can play it back. And Mm -hmm. there comes a point, I think where that line is blurred and you think that you're talking to yourself or these originated from your own, um, mm-hmm. from your own being when they didn't. Um, mm-hmm. Imagine the amount of people who are living in those lies. Like, mm-hmm. you know. I saw this post on Instagram that said, the devil will tell you a lie in your own voice. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I was like, that's exactly how so many of us are living. Mm-hmm. We are hearing the voices, the words of others, but we're hearing in our own voice. We perceive right. it to be true. Right. But where do those words come from? Right. And that's the power of words. When we understand the origin of words and the power they have over us, 
we can then control it, change it, and create new dialogues, new narratives, and add new power to it. Right. And, you know, I remember, like, as a kid, we, the, the, the narrative that was going around was, you know, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words, words will never hurt me. I remember, mm -hmm. I remember hearing that um, in elementary school. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> it's kind of funny thinking about it now because, you know, that was, that's completely, it's completely the opposite. Yeah, it's right? completely inaccurate. It's completely yeah. inaccurate because if words didn't hurt, a lot of things in history wouldn't be as they are. Mm -hmm. <laughs> right. Because a lot of the things happen from language, from whether it's written word yeah. or if it's verbally communicated. Mm -hmm. Something went awry or something was or words were intentionally used to hurt and harm a particular section and community Group. within our our society. Whether and people are being villainized or alienated or ostracized simply because of how they exist, words were able to construct those worlds and those divisions and those separations and those constraints and those systemic things that will oppress people. So mm -hmm. words are very, very powerful. Yeah. And as you mentioned, you know, many times throughout this conversation, it can be used in whichever way that you give them power, right? Like it can be used mm -hmm. for good. It can be used to share your truth. They can be used to empower others, right? Mm -hmm. Empower and lift your community. I mean, so much of this is perception, right? I mean, mm -hmm. you talked about brand, you talked about marketing earlier. Everything that we see is because someone wanted you to see it that way, right? The exactly. way that people hold themselves, the way that people talk about themselves, the way that people talk about others, it really resonates with me because it, it shows me the power of being able to um, kind of be bold and actually lead life the way you want to. And mm -hmm. that's so, it's demonstrated really beautifully through your story. It's really inspiring. Very inspiring. Thank you. Mm -hmm. And can, I'd love to, before we get dive into the last two questions, I'd love for you to talk um, a little bit about why representation is so important. Representation is so important because it is literally life-changing. And that might sound so, like, over-the-top and unnecessarily, like, hyperbolic, if you will, but it's, it's life-changing from the micro to the macro. So years ago, I used to work in retail, um, as many as, of us have, but yep. I took it as an opportunity to, to put myself in certain spaces to show a face that may not be seen there. Um, so I actually, by fluke, got hired with Tommy Hilfiger, literally a fluke. <laughs> and I was hired on... Um, by Tommy Hill with to work with Tommy Hilfiger okay. and naturally there's not very much representation in the Tommy family um and my manager had actually said to me one of my managers um had said to me oh well you don't look very Tommy today but your hair is very Tommy and I had a fro on but I was wearing Tommy Hilfiger clothes but I guess the way it was styled wasn't Tommy enough wasn't on brand enough <laughs> but my okay. hair was in a fro and that was Tommy enough for her but what she didn't understand was I was wearing my hair in a fro not to be 
Tommy, but to be myself in a space that did not like me the way I am. <laughs> mm. So um, I was folding shirts in Tommy Hilfiger, and this little girl was just like helicopter hovering around me. And I'm like, what's going on? Like, where's your mom? <laughs> yeah. And she was just looking at me. And then I realized she was staring at my hair. And her mom realized that she was staring at my hair. Yeah. And so her mom says, doesn't her hair look like yours? And she starts mm-hmm. nodding. Wow. And yeah. so I said, did you know that your hair is magical? And she's like, what? <laughs> and I was like, Tangled has nothing on how magical our hair is. She's like, oh. And I said to her, our hair can grow and it can shrink and it defies gravity. <laughs> but we, and she's like, oh my goodness. I said, I bet you none of your other friends have hair like that. And she's like, no. <laughs> and I was like, it does very special things. And you know what? It's so magical and so special that it could only be given to certain people like you and me. And she's like, oh, mommy, she has hair like mine. And I was like, yes. And now we're superheroes and we're superhero sisters. So don't worry about it. And her mom was just like, thank you. Because I don't think she ever saw someone Mm -hmm. in a regular everyday space that looked like her and it seems so small and so minuscule to be like you wore your fro your retail shift at tommy hilfiger but to see a black woman with her hair out folding shirts in tommy hilfiger especially at a time when tommy hilfiger had apparently made racist statements it was like what (laughs) what are you doing here and with your hair out and it was just those are the times when I know representation is necessary and it doesn't have to be on a big screen. It doesn't have to be in our stories being told. It just has to be in us existing and standing in our power as we were created so that we can be a reflection of others through ourselves. Right. Mm-hmm. I'm snapping because that's a thing to do. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's funny. I've um, chosen to be to kind of go to spaces where a lot of like poets and, and creatives and storytellers hang out because I learned so much from them. Um, mm-hmm. And I think the way that they see the world is, is quite beautiful and there it, mm-hmm. it challenges. I don't think it matters what space you're in, like what industry you're working. Um, but your, your ability to t- like everything is storytelling everything mm-hmm. storytelling business mm-hmm. storytelling like being able to connect with other people is storytelling and i and i like and i really love how we're going back to that space that really values community especially mm-hmm. in the west i i love how there's that that pull to be in rooms and you'll hear like tribe is kind of like a buzzword now but um, yeah. we're kind of going back to what is us like what humans mm-hmm. have always done you know gathered um in groups and passed along stories and yeah and that's the thing i i'm very keen and i'm very much of an advocate of oral history in terms of understanding that spoken word is the longest standing art form that has existed in humanity mm-hmm. and it's not to downplay any other art music visual arts 
you know what I mean? But the way that we would tell each other in ancient times, don't go over there, there's an alligator, was through stories. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yep. it, it's really, it's, it's like that in the most basic form, we have existed because we have told stories. Right. We have thrived because we have told stories. We have survived because we have told stories. Whether it's in rhyme, whether it's just in straight mm-hmm. <laughs> don't go there. Like we have existed as a people, as a human race, because we tell stories. Storytelling is a powerful thing. I, I don't think I've, no, I can say it firmly. There hasn't been an episode uh, quite like this. And um, I think you were such an amazing person to tell it. Um, just Thank you. Considering your background and the stuff that you were doing since the age of three, which is wild. <laughs> which is so wild. I'd really love for, so like the last two questions that I ask mm-hmm. all my guests is like, what is a resource? What is a, a book, a, a podcast, maybe a person um, that has really been pivotal on your journey? Mm-hmm. Um, hands down, a book that has literally changed me is John C. Maxwell's The 15 Invaluable Laws of Growth. Um, mm-hmm. I received that for my 25th birthday, um, 25th lie, 24th birthday, and a mentor of mine had given it to me. And he's like, you know what? I know, like, you've been going through some transitions. I had a whole course, like, crisis at 24. <laughs> wow. Yeah. And um, the short version of a long story is I was thinking in my mind, I'm like, my mom had me at 24. She was married with a house, debt-free, uh, a car, everything, a job in her field at, at 24. And I'm 24, and I can't. I'm still in my parents' house. I have, like that I am not I'm working in, in retail like what is life <laughs> mm-hmm. and I had a total paralyzed crisis my dad's like don't worry you're planting seeds I'm like but daddy I don't even have a pot I don't even have soil <laughs> I don't even have seeds to plant like I, I, what are you telling me and so yeah. at 24 I had a really hard time and I was speaking to a mentor about it and he got me that book mm-hmm. and so for a year I just had it sitting there I didn't read it it was it, it was decor at best and when I turned 25, I said, nope, something has got to change. I cannot keep going in this way. And I sat there and I committed myself to 15 weeks of just taking a week to go through each chapter, doing all the work, reading it over and over as I might have needed to, and um, and just really setting up what my strategic map of applying what I was learning in this book was. And so that book, hands down, was my and has been my greatest resource in my adult life. Amazing. I'll definitely uh, link that in the show notes. And I haven't heard of it, so I'll I'll check it out myself too. Um, The second question is, uh, what's your why? What do you strongly believe that you were meant to do during your time here? Um, My why is to exist in the fullness of my power Mm -hmm. so that I can be a reflection of who and what I need to be for others so that I can then help them to bridge the gap between where and who they want to be um, and where they currently stand (laughs) Mm -hmm. and who they currently are. Um, So whether that's by actively engaging with them through um, workshops or art or mentorship or community engagement 
or if it's just they come across my content on say social media or they see a poetry video or whatever it is read something that I wrote um however they see it or I'm folding shirts and Tommy Hilfiger (laughs) (laughs) however they encounter me um I every encounter is supposed to encourage empower and spur on someone else to be who and what they are meant to be thank you for continuing to share uh your truth and own your voice um it's honestly it's a gift and we all have that we just need to tap into it and exactly if people come across it by kind of stumbling across other people's content or have a certain experience in their life that draws them to this once you're able to own that literally Mm -hmm. the the world is your oyster it's your oyster exactly Mm -hmm. yep and just do it like you did in creating this space and creating this tribe for yourself and for others and and creating this safe space to be able to give people um room to be able to unpack and explore and equip themselves and how they want to find their voice and find their story so thank you for doing this and for creating this space and going all in thank you I'll end on that note. All right, that's it for episode 20. Um, I know there are some key things that you can um, take here and apply in your life. Bye, everyone.